I'm Grant. And I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Please join us in historical podcastrimony. <laughs> I, I work hard. <laughs> I work hard on these. These get my worst laughs out. Like, that was almost a snort. <laughs> Anyways, we are back. Yeah, we are. And, and uh, we're finally getting to my, my coin flip. Yes. That we had to put on hiatus mm-hmm. because of... Mouth problems. Mouth problems, which I am happy to report are pretty much done and over yeah, with. No dry socket. You came out as, as well as could be. So, we are going to talk mm-hmm. about another uplifting subject. I'm sure. I swear it's not as much of a downer as last time. Today, we are going to talk about diseases and fashion. Now, this this one I'm really excited to get to, I think... It twigs on something that I really enjoy about history. Fashion? No, the, the way everything is interconnected. Oh, okay. And how one event pulls on so many more strings than you'd think if you think of history as just a, a series of facts in sequence. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. So I want to hear all about this. Please teach me. Okay. The reason I picked this topic mm-hmm. was that... In May, there was an article that came out by the Smithsonian Magazine Okay. that was about tuberculosis and fashion, specifically. And I was, like, fascinated by it. <laughs> I decided I want to, like, dive into that mm-hmm. more. Right. Um, so we're going to talk about that first, and then we're going to look at some other things, too. So first off, we're going to start with talking about tuberculosis. Tuberculosis itself. Itself. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of history there. Do you know a lot about tuberculosis? I know that if you get bumps, it's bad. I, I, during the skin test? During the skin test. Yeah, yes. My, most of my experience with tuberculosis is the skin test for, like, various jobs. Yeah, and, like, I had to get one, like, Every a couple five years ago. or something for a checkup. Yeah, some of my Twitter followers remember that skin test because yeah. I was sitting in CVS angrily tweeting about it being three hours till they could see me to just poke me. <laughs> it's an so, annoying test. I'm so sorry, dear. Tuberculosis, mm-hmm. also known as TB, or consumption. I do love consumption. My favorite thing is buying stuff I don't need. Yeah. I'm a big fan of consumption. Well, that's good. We're, so we're going to talk about that. And I, I might use those names interchangeably. Okay. They all mean the same thing. Okay. Stuff probably people know. It's an infectious disease. Primarily affects... What do you think? What do you think it affects? Uh, deer, I think. (laughs) That's The lungs. Oh, okay. It affects the lungs. Um, 90% of cases, it's your lungs, there's chest pain, coughing, Mm -hmm. blood. So it's a respiratory illness. Yeah, you you can also get fevers, chills, it affects your appetite, there's weight loss, fatigue. Okay. Um, In really severe cases, it can affect other parts of your body, including other organs and your skin. Oh, all right. So it can move, but primarily a respiratory lung thing. Okay. It's been around since antiquity. This ain't some flash-in-the-pan disease. It's got roots. It's got... No, tuberculosis has been around a really long time. The bacteria Mm -hmm. was identified and described in 1882 um, by Robert Cook, which apparently he was also known for his work with anthrax. Yeah. I mean, they've had a lot of drummers over the years, I'm sure. Um, but he won the Nobel Prize in 1905 for discovering tuberculosis. Or, well, what causes tuberculosis. Right. And it also, his discovery really helped, he helped germ theory grow and be taken seriously. So he, he lended it the, the sort of legitimacy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that. Before the discovery, it was thought that it was either inherited. Mm-hmm. Or that it was caused by bad errors. Right. I mean, that was miasma theory. It was the thing yeah. uh, germ theory supplanted, primarily. Yeah. yeah. Most illnesses at the time, they thought, like, it was from vapors being released in the body or mm-hmm. different stuff like that. It's kind of... Yeah, throw a leech on it. Yeah, you know. Oh, no, my leech has tuberculosis. Most people know it is spread through the air mm-hmm. when it is in your lungs, but only if it's active. People can have... Inactive tuberculosis. Oh, well, that's handy. And you, it can't be passed until it is active. Closet tuberculosis, sure. Why not? Um, And that's actually the majority of cases is inactive or latent, so it can't be spread. Like, 
most diseases, it grew in urban populations. Um, Especially airborne diseases. Airborne diseases require people to be in tight quarters to move efficiently. Yeah. Maybe I knew this a long time ago, but I forgot. But did you know that there's, like, bovine TB? Like, cattle? Sure. Cattle can have tuberculosis. Because their life isn't hard enough. The f- they first realized it was present in the early 1800s, but it wasn't until Cook, actually, that they discovered that it not only can transfer from person to person, but animal to person. Oh, great. Fantastic. Yeah. That was actually a big problem, mm-hmm. was that TB was so present in cattle, even though they found out about it like in the 1800s. And Cook discovered, made these discoveries in the late 1800s. It wasn't until, like, 1929 that, like, there was any type of or government debate or talking about the fact, like, this is in cattle as well. Mm-hmm. Is this something we should be concerned about? And that's why cows aren't allowed to be camp counselors anymore. Yeah. Because they yeah, might transmit is... tuberculosis to the children. Pasteurization helps with that. That, that That's the thing, because milk is actually um, oh, one of oh, the things yeah, yeah. that transfers it. So it wasn't until um, pasteurization became a big thing that a link between those two things kind of died out. So of, of all the diseases that pasteurization helps curb, uh, people noticed tuberculosis was kind of high on that list? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that was like through like World War II. Okay. Because that's when pasteurization started to take off. The hot new trend. <laughs> Have your kids been telling you about pasteurization? Currently, one-third of the world population is thought to be infected with tuberculosis. Oh, wonderful. The lungs of the world are are doing great. In 2014, there was 9.6 million people who were confirmed infected. Okay. Who had been, like, tested. But it's thought that a much larger population carries TB. So this one-third number, like 2 billion people, that's just a... An estimate based on... Yes, because the majority of cases are in Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, places where it's harder to get treatment and tested, Mm -hmm. um, where there's a lot of populations that go untreated. It's about 10,000 cases within the U.S. 90% of these cases are people who are infected but don't actually have the disease. Okay. They have latent TB, not active. That's why this isn't necessarily like you're not... You don't hear about it as much as because, yeah, you get tests, but it doesn't necessarily mean you have it. Mm-hmm. So in 1890, mm-hmm. after Cook found out what causes tuberculosis, mm-hmm. he thought he discovered a remedy. Oh, like well, that's cure. handy. It didn't work. Oh, well, that explains <laughs> some of those numbers then, yeah. But it was um, later like adapted to become a screening test for oh. pre-symptomatic tuberculosis. I assume it led to, like, maybe the skin test we have now. Sure. Because the skin test is what is typically done for inactive TB. If you work in an environment where you're exposed a lot, you get sent for a skin test where they put... I was told it was, like, non-active TB in your skin to see if your skin reacts. If your skin reacts, it's thought that it's within you. But if you have TB... Mm-hmm. You get like X-rays and, or if it's thought that you have, if you have symptoms, you get X-rays. Um, culture is done, much more involved testing. Right. Um, in case you ever like have to go, you know what to expect. Please don't get tuberculosis. <laughs> <laughs> there is a vaccine. Oh, good. But it's only used primarily in children and those at risk. Okay. Because it doesn't fully protect you. Okay. It only like helps reduce the risk. And it only lasts for ten years. And it can create, the main thing is it can create a false positive on future TB tests. Uh-huh. So if you get the vaccine, your tests are going to come up positive, even though you don't have it. Well, it just seems like it's going to cause some confusion. Yeah. So I think... I th- uh, keep, keep your vaccine paperwork in case you got to prove something, folks. Also, in like places like the United States where tuberculosis is not that prominent, mm-hmm. they don't give the vaccines unless it's an absolute necessity that you're surrounded with people who have it because it's just really not needed. 1943 was when Albert Schatz uh, discovered the first antibiotic to be a cure for TB. Well, now we don't need any of this other nonsense because everybody (laughs) chugged those antibiotics and we're going to make it through this just fine. Well, mm, so treatment for TB Mm -hmm. currently includes six months of antibiotics. 
sometimes surgery as well. But tuberculosis is becoming uh, drug resistant. Oh, okay. Um, so you get one like cocktail of antibiotics for six months. If it doesn't work, mm-hmm. there's a second option. If it doesn't work after that, it's considered drug resistant, and there's not and many options. You're just released into the wild to, to live your life under the, the full moon with uh, your cow brethren. No, unfortunately, actually, you end up living in, like, isolation. Oh, there's the there's exact some, opposite. There's some cases of that within the United States right now, um, where there there's... I can't remember his name, but there was um, quite a known speaker. Probably does not go out into the public that much because he is under isolation, but... Like, he's basically, there's, right now, there's nothing else they can do. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when it's resistant, they can still recover from it mm-hmm. and get over it, natu- like, on your own mm-hmm. or through other alternative treatments, but they can't just give you a different type of antibiotic because there's <laughs> none. There's nothing that will do it. So once antibiotics came in, it decreased death by 50%. Fantastic. So this was, what, 1943? By the 1950s, is 50% less chance of dying from it. Pretty great. Yeah, yeah, Pretty yeah, great, yeah. considering. Uh, because before antibiotics, there were, like, oh, no options. This is going to be the sad part, this isn't is it? This is where we start getting into the, the, the real history of this. <laughs> um, so but before we've even found the, the bacteria, yeah. much less any ways to, to combat it, yeah. there was still tuberculosis. Yes. Which from days of yore? Do you do you know why it was called consumption historically? Because uh, you really wanted to buy the latest electronic gadgets. No, we live in a capitalist society, darling. It has to come from somewhere, and I'm going to blame the germs. It's because people slowly wasted away. Oh, you were consumed by the disease. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, you know, since it affects your appetite, your weight. Things like being pale, thin, muscle problems, inability to do things, it was it consumed you. It took away your life, was the idea, which was why it was called consumption. Apparently before the Industrial Revolution, it was like folklore associated it with vampires. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sure. Because it was if someone died. I can see that. The yeah. rest of the family would typically lose their health too because they developed the disease. Mm-hmm. But it was thought that the original person who died was like draining their life. Mm-hmm. After from- they had their slowly sucked away. Yeah. By some swarthy foreigner. Yeah. So it was like thought that there was like this vampire connection of oh, like this wow. family being like preyed upon. Mm-hmm. As we said, tuberculosis has been around really, really long time. The rate of tuberculosis infections rose from, like, the 1600s through the 1800s. It just continued to go and go and go. As urbanization continued to develop. Exactly. With the growth of it, it goes. I'm paying attention, yeah. it hit, uh, in the 1800s, it hit epidemic levels in Europe and the United States. And it said that 25% of people died from it. Oh, like, in 1815, one in four deaths in England were attributed to it. Uh, 1918, in France, one in six deaths. So it was a large, large, large portion of the population there. And treatment for it was... There wasn't much. Options were very limited. Mm-hmm. Um, people were kind of just, like, kept on bed rest at home. In the mid-1800s, Dr. John Croghan, he owned Mammoth Cave. And he brought a bunch of people with tuberculosis there, hoping that, like, this constant temperature in the cave and, like, the purity of this cave. So this is an actual underground, like, limestone cave. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It would, like, cure them being in this environment. Mm Mm-hmm. They all died in a year. Well, yeah. (laughs) Did not work. The, the cave does not naturally secrete antibiotics. No. I'm pretty sure. Nope. That it was fated to be. But... But at least they didn't have to worry about air conditioning or harsh sunlight. I mean, it that being dry ever. Like, come on now. His idea behind this though was really like what the treatment involved though was like getting air. Like fresh air was thought to be the best thing you could have. 1859 is when the first sanatorium opened for tuber- tuberculosis patients. Mm-hmm. Sanatorium being a hospital but you live there, it's open air a lot of times, mm-hmm. and you would 
go there for treatment. But treatment was basically fresh air. So you'd sleep in an open porch mm-hmm. or a ventilated room. If you were lucky, they encouraged you to exercise. But it depended. Sometimes you were just told to like lie there like a log. So there were competing uh, theories of sanitarium care. Well, it actually depended on your health. Oh, how okay. far along your tuberculosis was. The worse you were, the more log-like your state had to be. Because <laughs> um, logs can't get tuberculosis. It was kind of the idea that if you move too much, you're going to aggravate your lungs. Mm-hmm. You don't want to make it worse. So you were supposed to, like, lay and not move and not do anything. Like, they incur- they told you, like, not even to, like, knit or read or do anything. You were just supposed to be there until your lungs healed themselves enough that walking was not going to harm them. Uh-huh. And then as you slowly got better, they would encourage you to exercise, but you weren't supposed to get out of breath. You weren't supposed to do anything too much. You're supposed to move, but our thoughts of exercise are, like, working out, and it wasn't that. It was just movement. Mm-hmm. Which, in some case, did work. It did. Right. Some people, it did allow them to heal and to rest and for things to take care of themselves. The theory does make sense from that perspective, right? Because yeah. you see that this uh, disease is running rampant in the city. Mm-hmm. So you take them out of the city, and clearly the city is full of all these smoke-belching factories. Yeah. So give them clean air. And, like, it, it, it's not correct it doesn't yeah. kill bacteria but the thought is yeah makes it makes sense i mean it also removes infectious disease from the population right something that they can kind of, they can tell spreads mm-hmm. so away so ideally not your entire family will get it yeah while the quarantine may not have saved the uh patients in the number they might have hoped yeah you think there's a chance that just sending someone away to sanitarium might have saved the rest of their friends and family? In, in a number of cases. It had to have helped in some cases. This is a depressing thing, is that there's records of this one in Virginia that when you entered it, mm-hmm. you paid in advance. You paid for your stay. Sure. So the money covered your room and board there, your food, everything. But it also was supposed to cover a ticket home. Uh-huh. And you want to think like, yeah, because they'll get better, they'll go home. It's very optimistic line item uh, in the bill. It, it was actually like, if they expected you to die soon, they would send you on a train home because there was more dignity in dying at home. Uh. And this like, want to die at home. Mm-hmm. Or if you died, they could send your body back. Right. And that was all taken care of. And they wouldn't be, like, stuck with it. So, yeah, they're sending you home one way or another. Yep, one way or home. You're gonna, you're gonna go home. It just might not be for what you wanted. That's a little bit of history about tuberculosis. So, uh... I don't, I don't know how much of that you maybe knew or didn't know. <laughs> but you're probably like, how, how does this relate to fashion? Yeah. When we get into fashion? So, I'm looking at the title of this episode, and I see one part. I'm wondering about the second part. We're, we're gonna get there shortly. And that comes right after this. Welcome back. Uh, So now you're going to tell us uh, about tuberculosis and what it has to do with the world of fashion. Yes, I am. We're going to talk about how this relates Mm -hmm. with it. So when tuberculosis was determined contagious Mm -hmm. uh, in the 1880s, it led to a large-scale public health campaign. Okay. Um, Like things like stop spitting in public, (laughs) which I really wish we would bring back. Yeah. Come on, people. It's gross. Why can't you keep your spit in your mouth? (laughs) Just carry a tiny little spittoon on your belt and take it home. Ride the CTA trains, people gross. But in addition to like stuff like that, like don't spit because mm-hmm. it's or cover your mouth when you cough. Mm-hmm. Let's all those things to ourselves. Let's keep our germs to ourselves. Right. Mm-hmm. These public health campaigns also um, influenced fashion. Okay. Because they targeted them. Like that's when they first started talking about like long skirts. You're dragging them across the street. They're bringing germs in. Okay. 
so there's actually like campaigns like against women's skirts. Like you need to stop letting your skirt bring germs into your house. So this started the uh, obscene ankle length skirt. Yes, it did. It did lead to hemlines being raised. All right. Corsets were also like a popular thing of the time, but people criticized them because it led to uh, limiting lung movement and mm-hmm. blood circulation, which tuberculosis patients, like you need your lungs to be able to move to heal. Right. So they were still used, but it, they started introducing uh, more elastic fabrics, um, a little bit more room to breathe. <laughs> They modernized the corset. Yeah. Men were also targeted for this with their beards. Beards were really, really popular at the time. This is when they started to realize, like, that can hold disease. Not just tuberculosis, but other ones. And so it was encouraged to shave or at least wash your beard. (laughs) Um, Come on, bro. Wash your beard. But shortly after this time is when there started to be a change in men choosing to go clean shaven and not have, like, giant mutton chops. Mm Mm-hmm. In addition to stuff like that, where a public health campaign is influencing the fashion, there was also um, this romanticized idea about consumption and having it. Mm-hmm. Leading up to this time, the like beauty standards for like women—I mean, they can be similar nowadays too—but being <laughs> small waist, pale, delicate. Mm-hmm. Consumption like highlighted these things. Right. If you had tuberculosis, you were going to become even paler. Mm-hmm. You probably had a fever, so your che- cheeks had a nice pinkness to them, and your lips were red, and be- your eyes were dilated. Right. So you've got Nicole Kidman in Moulin Rouge dying of being too pretty. Yeah. Or uh, an echo of this uh, for '90s runway fashion with heroin chic. Yeah. Since it was already something like. That was thought to be beautiful. Here you have this disease that's enhancing these features. Well, it became something that, say, the upper class, because they had money and time to think about these things, like (laughs) fashion and doing these things. It's when, like, makeup, like, lipstick, cheek, like, blush, like, rouge at the time became more acceptable. Okay. In small doses still for people, but women would try to have those features highlight them um just like tuberculosis was doing to other people it was it was seen as this beautiful thing well i mean tuberculosis is the cheaper option but uh it's gonna be some side effects so there's like this fascination with um dying of tuberculosis because it was seen as like romantic because there was this gradual build to death you were, like, seen on, like, laying in a bed with a pillow, like, a noble air of, like, suffering. You were attractive. Your yeah, beauty standards were highlighted, so you were dying in the most beautiful way possible. And we're talking about the Victorian era now, right? Like, yeah. Like, this was a death-obsessed time, in in, uh, in England, at least. There's actually an interesting um, quote. It comes out of... Um, this book called Spitting Blood, The History of Tuberculosis. But it's a story... Now, that is an eye-grabbing cover <laughs> right? at your local library. The author shares a story that was told by Tom Moore, who's a writer, who's visiting with Lord Byron the Poet. Mm-hmm. And Byron... And that guy got up to some stuff, let me tell you. Well, it's quoted that he said, I look pale, I should like to die of a consumption. And, like, Moore's like... What? Why? (laughs) I'd like to die of being eaten by a tiger, so I want to hear your story. And he replied, because the ladies would say, look at that poor Byron. Look how interesting he looks dying. Byron was about five sherries in at that point. (laughs) Uh, It's an interesting thing to think about. It's like how people wanted their features to be highlighted in a way that this disease forced upon people. mm Mm-hmm. They wanted to have the waistline they did. So voluminous skirts, corsets, adding the makeup, all that. It's a strange idea. There's actually a book coming out. It's not, from what I could find, it's not out yet, but it's coming soon. And it's called Consumptive Chic, A History of Fashion, Beauty, and Disease. Uh huh. I really want to read it. <laughs> really interested. I'm sure there's just way more to this. There are several, like, articles and research things done about 
how this was influenced, but I feel like there's just more. Like, this is just, like, the tip of the iceberg of, like, Mm -hmm. what was happening. And so another thing that's interesting, so (laughs) going back to the public health campaign, so you have, like, uh, ideas of, you know, shorter hemlines and all that. Well, around this time, since they're pushing shorter hemlines and people are starting to follow it, there became a new focus on, like, shoes. Because you can see them now. Because you can see them now. (laughs) So it led to, like, a new interest and a piece of clothing that kind of was just uh, like, that's what you wear, unless you're going to a fancy mm. dance. Like, your everyday shoes are always the same. But suddenly, like, no, they're not. You probably will own more than one pair now. Ladies' shoes became uh, a fashion statement. Yeah. Yeah. In a way that they really had never been. Right. It also, so since doctors were focused on fresh air for patients, they were also um, encouraging, like, sun, getting sun, mm-hmm. getting out in nature. Well... That kind of leads down to the idea of sunbathing, hence tanning. And it was like a, a path that slowly grew. I wonder um, if this is the root of the phrase, like, a healthy tan, you know? Like, you brown up a bit, you're you're considered more healthy and energetic. I It would make sense, because before you're, like, you wanted to be pale, because that showed that you, like, didn't have to go outside. You mm-hmm. didn't have to work on a farm or anything. But then there was, like, a shift in health. It's kind of in a sh- when there was a shift also in, like, people traveling for recreation, mm-hmm. I feel like, is at this time. So people going on more, like, going to the seaside. Right. Going to hotels and places that you would have the opportunity to get sunshine. So it's kind of all connected. So that's kind of really all there is about the fashion connected to t- tuberculosis. Okay. But it got me, like, thinking about, like, what... What else is there? What other things are connected to fashion and disease? So we're going to talk about some other things. Let's have a whirlwind tour of all the different ways you can die and the clothes we made because of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, all, all right. it's all connected. So what's first on the docket? Okay. So f- so first, we're going to go back to the uh, idea of vapors and airs being what? Mm-hmm. Miasma theory. Yes. What caused tuberculosis and, you know, other illnesses. So that idea actually goes back, apparently, to, like, ancient Greece. Sure. Like, the ancient... As does tuberculosis. Yeah. In the classical era. So the idea is that damp, cold environments prevent humors from passing through the skin. Thus, they turn back to your organs and make you sick. Sure, fine, why not? I thought it, you know, caused inflammation. Wait, the humors included, like, blood and bile, right? Were the Greeks just leaking (laughs) everywhere? Because that explains a lot. I I think the focus here is more on, like, an invisible thing. I can hope so, because those togas, otherwise, are not coming back white at the end of the day. Ugh. You know, skin does, like, release stuff. Like, your, your, your skin is always, like, drying. Mm-hmm. You know, moisture is coming through it. Sweat, oils. Yeah. All that stuff you so, learn about when your body starts going through some changes. But it can't do anything to you. <laughs> like, that actually would be a problem if it didn't. Right. But they, they had their own idea about this. So, like, this fear of cold, damp environments, probably a lot of people's grandmas still bring this up. Like, oh, you're, you're going to catch a cold from that. From being in the cold. Being in the cold. It was really, really prominent um, through the 19th century. Which mm-hmm. definitely influenced fashion choices. So it led to, like, a need to protect the body. Not only, like, should you wear a bajillion layers, <laughs> but it was also, like, the type of material you're using. Mm-hmm. This is how, like, wool became super popular, too. Huh, and was, like, the fabric of choice is because you know it was... Do- you know who doesn't get a cold? Sheep. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's thought to be, like, the healthiest. Uh-huh. Um, like, the healthiest fabric. And some people even thought, like, it was, like, a filter to prevent, like, impurities <laughs> from, like, reaching your body. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I'm gonna open up my furnace now, and I'm gonna make myself a coat. <laughs> so... HEPA approved. Nothing getting through there. There's this encouragement to wear wool. Because mm-hmm. it'll protect you. It'll, it'll, it's a better fabric. It keeps you warm. It keeps you protected from this damn cold. But wool's not easy to clean at all. 
And Which, the, the dry cleaning uh, industry was way behind in the 1700s. So behind. Then you have the issue of fleas, lice, other carriers of disease living in the wool that you're wearing. Because not only do you not wash your clothes, like, you can't wash that that often. It's hard to wash. Mm-hmm. It's hard to wash properly. Yeah. So you just have, like, disease growing in what you wear. This idea influenced, like, like swaddling of babies. Uh-huh. Like, they would swaddle babies in wool. Which, you know, in cold environments, sure. Makes but apparently sense. this was, like, a big thing in, like, warm tropic environments. Right. Where British, that's like... that's where the British were yeah. in the 17th, so, 18th, 19th centuries. Like, British nurses would, like, swaddle a baby in a warm environment, thus leading to a lot of infant deaths. Just from overheating? From overheating the baby. Or, in, like, dehydrating the baby because the baby's sweating. In British India, British Africa... Etc. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very warm environments. It was a problem. 17th to 19th century, even up until now, there's those grandmas. Fear of drafts. Yes. It was like a crazy irrational fear at the time. <laughs> so they thought like if you were exposed to an air current, you were going to get a cold. You were going to get rheumatism. You were going to get something that was going to kill you. Mm-hmm. That also led to excessive covering, wearing layers. Even when it's super hot out, because, <laughs> oh no, you might feel a breeze. So you take that, like, let's cover our bodies in all this fabric. And this was still at the time when, like, bathing was not a priority. <laughs> You're trying to protect yourself from disease by making these choices and covering yourself. But you're probably just causing a lot of them because you're not... Very sanitary. <laughs> so you're saying all my, like, Regency-era bodice ripper romance novels are glossing over how gross and smelly they all oh, are. Oh, so smelly. So <laughs> smelly. So smelly. You have no idea. We could do an episode on hygiene through the ears. Oh. That'd be... I don't want to know what kind of warning we have to put on front of that one. Oosh. With this idea of, like, covering yourself, mm-hmm. there was also a weird short-lived trend... Specifically in, like, France for, like, 18th, 19th century, where, like, thin fabric was, like, the rage. Nice. Like, wearing muslin, muslin dresses. Yeah. Um, that's already, like, right there, you know, well, that doesn't offer a lot of protection when it is winter, when mm-hmm. it is cold. But there was, like, this trend to, like, dampen the dresses. <laughs> So so they would, like, show off your figure and your undergarments better? The wet t-shirt contest was invented by the French. Yes. <laughs> Walking around in a wet dress, kind of not the best idea. Well, but to- right, because you're going to catch a draft and you'll die of, of the flu. I just learned this. So in, you know, revolutionary France, there were, like, strict laws limiting what lower classes could own like the amount of clothing clothing and accessories they could have Mm -hmm. and how wet they could be (laughs) well it was something like one or 3.5 kilograms um of like clothing a woman could wear if you were of a lower class Uh uh-huh who's weighing these women (laughs) because of this apparently some women like didn't wear underwear (laughs) they're just like screw this i'm gonna have a heavier dress but because light dresses were in, and wet dresses were in, and they were trying to, like, still be fashionable, it's thought that it led to a lot of, like, pneumonia cases. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of leering young men. Uh- well, and doctors at the time actually, like, were trying to say that it that trend of fashion led to the influenza outbreak in Paris in 1803. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Um, which is why this whole fashion trend is called the muslin disease mm-hmm. because of the muslin dresses right. causing deaths because you're walking around in a wet dress in February. <laughs> Books about Napoleon usually leave that part out. Uh. <laughs> we have a few more stories to share and like some of them go back and forth where like the disease leads to a fashion trend and some of it's where a fashion trend leads to a disease. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're going to explore some more. Sure, sure. Okay. So next one involves smallpox. Sure, fine. And lead-based face powder. Yep, can't get enough. <laughs> so 18th century, smallpox. Super big cause of death, right? Mm-hmm. Not, not a great thing there. 
But those those people who survived, those lucky people... Were covered in pockmarks. Yep. Um, that combined with, at the time, lead-based face powder, mm-hmm. which you know people used because they wanted to have a porcelain skin. Uh, see, the thing with lead compounds is they have vibrant colors. That's why lead-based paint was so popular, because mm-hmm. the colors are just really pow, you know? Yeah. Oh, I could do a, I could do a whole episode on the lead and arsenic fashion inju- industry of the past. I'm sure. Because lead was a prominent ingredient in makeup at the time that was used, not only were you slowly poisoning yourself, but it led to a lot of lesions and mm-hmm. stuff. So two things there that you kind of want covered. Yeah, yeah. This led to a thing called beauty patches. So a beauty patch was... This sounds like a nice name for something horrible, and I've got an inkling I'm right. What do you think it is? I don't know, but it just sounds so euphemistic. (laughs) It has to be something bad. Beauty patch were were pieces of, like, pricey fabric, like silks and velvets and stuff, Mm -hmm. that were cut into shapes. Stars, moons, sometimes, like, really fancy things like horses and, like, castles. (laughs) Um, But they had adhesive. They were like a sticker. Basically, they were like a, a sticker that you put on your skin to cover your spots. So people like put stickers, fabric stickers on their skin to cover a sore or a spot. Now, I'm glad we got rid of smallpox, but a part of me really misses the whimsy. <laughs> they were used for that, but they actually became like such a staple of fashion mm-hmm. that they were worn, started to become worn for the fashion side of it, the aesthetic, right. not to actually cover skin problems. Beauty patches for beauty's sake. Yeah. Women, like, had cases of these things that they carried around, so that way they could, like, change it out at any moment that they wanted to, or to, like, put more on. <laughs> and there actually became, like, a language based on where you put it. Mm-hmm. Things that so would like suggest... like, an orange one hanging out of your back pocket means you're down for anything. Things that would suggest certain types of, like, feelings. <laughs> but also, like, there was, like, apparently if you put it on is, one side of your forehead... Is there, like, a don't even talk to me today beauty patch? Kind of. It, they seemed like they were associated more with, like, words. Okay. Like, then... It, there's probably stuff that actually led to, like... Your mother me is in the a bird closet. Goat. Oh, yeah. But, or, like, you're a jerk. I hate you. Put this one <laughs> on my forehead. But there is also stuff, like... If you put it on one side of your forehead, you were associated with wigs. And if you put it on the other side, you were a Tory. <laughs> like, there was ways to communicate, like, what side you're on by where you put a beauty patch. Mm-hmm. So this disappeared, obviously. People aren't walking around with stickers on their face. but you Unless can they see... have four-year-old children. <laughs> but you can see that the Marilyn Monroe beauty mark trend. Mm-hmm. Like people, they're, they're fake ones. People wanted a beauty mark like her. So you could actually go buy a fake beauty mark mm-hmm. to put on your face to be like her. It's the same thing. It's the same type of trend. Right. Of where, well, I want to look like that person. So even though they're covering it, like it was real for that person or like they're covering it for a health reason, I'm just going to stick this on my face because it looks cool. I guess the, the, uh, comparison would be more apt if Marilyn Monroe's beauty mark were a melanoma. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. But it's still like a similar, it's a similar product. For sure, yeah. Yeah. Another fun story here is a thing called the Alexandra Limp. Have you heard of this one? I'm guessing it's not a young woman from the Limp family. No. This is my father, Mr. Limp, and I am Alexandra. No. Okay. So this this was a short-lived fad in 1869. Before we had television or anything better to do with our lives. People were fascinated with Princess Alexandra of Denmark. She married the Prince of Wales in 1863. Uh-huh. They, they wanted to look like her. So they copied her style, her dresses, everything. But they also, like, one of the things they copied was she always wore a p- pearl choker. Mm-hmm. She wore it because she had, like, a huge scar on her neck. <laughs> So everyone wore that. And then she also had a limp from a is a temporary like stiffening in her knee after an illness. Okay. So she had a limp for a while and used a cane sometimes to get around. Well, people decided that, well, if I, I'm really going to like 
be fashionable like her, I need a limp too. Yeah. So people would wear like mismatched shoes, <laughs> have a cane, and just limp around. That's um, dedication. These people are going method in their celebrity worship. <laughs> to be fashionable and yeah. to be like her. It, it apparently only lasted like two years maximum. Um, partly <laughs> by then they started developing real limps. Well, partly like there was like other royalty that got married and they mm-hmm. could focus on, and also there was like a new skirt style that like didn't allow legs to move enough to be able to limp. <laughs> Thank goodness Kate Middleton is just kind of rich, you know. And this one, this this one's gross. This one's gross. Sure, sure. So the Elizabethan era. Okay. Incredibly gross. Short-lived fad of fake gingivitis. It could be worse. Do you have any idea what they did with human waste in the Elizabethan era? I don't, we're not going to talk about that. Okay. Since sugar was super expensive mm-hmm. and rare, unless you were the upper of the utmost class, right. you know, and since dental hygiene was non-existent, those who were wealthy tended to have really, really, really terrible teeth. Just importing sugarcane from the new Caribbean colonies. Just, just like the worst and because like their teeth were so bad they just kind of like rocked it and were like yeah <laughs> gingivitis is cool look, like this look is at what how you wealthy want. i am this is what you want your teeth to look like i have money so i can afford sugar mm-hmm. and rotting teeth so those who couldn't do it put black powder on their teeth to fake it <laughs> this was a, the way to be fashionable because mm-hmm. if you had rotten rotting teeth you must have money It is an interesting idea, like, I'm sure there are other similar causes that we look back on as as very silly for, like, non-Western fashion trends, like blacking of teeth in uh, Imperial Japan for a while. Yeah. Not coming from the sugar trade, but I I wonder what the deal with that was, where where that got started. I don't know. It's a good question. Last last story we got here, Mm -hmm. which, this one might be... Really well known because of the connection it has to idioms to Alice in Wonderland. Okay, Mad Hatter. Do you do you know like why he's the you, Mad Hatter? You don't like it when I look ahead, or don't even have to look ahead. So I'm going to plead the fifth. Okay, so you know why? I let you do your Probably job. Probably a lot of people know this one. I feel okay. like this is one of the more common known things. Like if you're familiar with Alice in Wonderland, you know. But there's some interesting information to it. The phrase, mad as a hatter, came from the fact that hat making led to a lot of mercury poisoning. Mm-hmm. Assume you know that. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. they use mercury to, to flatten the hatten. Yes. It is, <laughs> it's a process called carotene. Okay. Um, and fur needed to be separated from skin and then matted together to create the felt. Flatten the matten. Yes. So was the orange liquid they used had mercury in it. Um, and it was used to, like, smooth it out. Now, this process started, like, 17th century, which is when mercury was already known to be dangerous. <laughs> Just want to throw that out there. Um, Look, there's dangerous and there's dangerous. I'm sure this entire industry will be fine. So, But it was, like, a trade secret. Mm-hmm. Like, one, like, hat maker started it, and then slowly it just spread as, like, the secret got out, and, like, yeah. everyone's using it. Before that, it was, like, camel urine or something? Well, if I had to take my choice, I can see where they're coming from here. So in treated felts, there was a slow reaction that released volatile free mercury. Mm -hmm. And because hatters or milliners were in close, confined areas working on these things, they were exposed. For those who don't know, like, getting mercury poisonings, like, leads to mental confusion, emotional disturbance, muscle weakness neurological, kidney damage. Um, it could also lead to, like, red fingers, toes, and cheeks. Hence, like, the Mad Hatter look you sometimes see. Mm-hmm. Um, sweating, hearing loss, bleeding ears and mouth, loss of teeth, hair, nails, poor memory, shyness, dizziness, tremors. Tremors being hatter shakes or mad as a hatter. Those That's specifically the thing that led to that. Uh-huh. So yeah, the symptoms being mostly neurological, at least until you get to a point where you're way too far gone. Yeah. Uh, is, is, I guess, where that turn of phrase came from. Yeah. Yeah. You were often acting sporadic and different than, like, your normal self would have been. Mm-hmm. That's how the phrase kind of connects to that. Now, in 1874, 
alternatives became available to the mercury liquid. Oh, good. In 1898... Wait, wait, just hold up. Are these alternatives also urine-based? Because they already voted on that, and uh, it's not going to work. No. Okay. 1898, France passed laws to protect hat makers. Mm-hmm. 20th century, it was super rare for British hat makers to be poisoned for mercury. U.S. continued to use mercury solutions until the 1940s. Until 1941. <laughs> Why? <laughs> There's actually Why? very specific stories about different pl- different hat making places within the United States. Um, There's actually like a specific case about Danbury, Connecticut. Okay. Um. So the Connecticut State Board of Health was like monitoring the effects of mercury in hat makers from like the 1880s to 1890s. Mm-hmm. But since it only affected like the people in the work environment and not the public, mm-hmm. they didn't really care. They were like, eh, whatever. But in in 1913, mercury poisoning was added to the State Workmen's Compensation Act. Oh, that's nice. Um, and it was recognized as an occupational hazard, like, in 1919. But it wasn't till like, 1937 that there was a government study that really looked at what was going on. What this eventually led to, though, was um, United States Public Health Service ended up, like, negotiating an agreement among, like, hatter unions and mm-hmm. manufacturers um, in a lot of states to, to end this usage. And in 1941, the Connecticut governor put a ban on the use of mercury. Hydrogen peroxide ended up being the replacement <laughs> to mercury for them. Well, at least it's good for something. So it was like a super long process, even though they were aware it was a problem. Well, I'll just keep doing it. Yeah. But apparently to this day in Danbury, Connecticut, on like the ground that was the factory... There are high levels of mercury. Well, it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. It's a it's, it's a heavy metal. It doesn't yeah. degrade. Yeah. So that's that's still a thing there. They're trying to figure out like ways to get rid of it, get it out of there. Because but... I'm sure they're reusing that land, or at least trying to, for something else. Yeah. Yeah. So those are a few of my my fun uh, fashion illness to disease to disease to fashion stories there. <laughs> yeah. Good times. Good. Good times. People are making very interesting choices. <laughs> so, did you learn anything? Did I, learned, I tell you anything you didn't know? I learned some stuff. I did. Uh, like I said at the top, the, the way that uh, things in society have much longer reach than seems immediately obvious. What I think is interesting about this uh, example of that is that all people deal with disease at some point in their life. We all get sick. We're all fallible. But the way that we choose to deal with that uh, in different uh, cultural contexts, whether it's celebrity worship of a princess or a disease that happens to have symptoms that look pretty or <laughs> something or- where we need to cover up this ugly disease with something frivolous, just just the the different permeations of that drive are really varied and and really interesting to me. Yeah, yeah. And it's 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 a very intertwined thing mm-hmm. throughout history in either direction of which way it's influencing. Right. But you know, it's all about like what is happening in the world at the time trickles down. Mm-hmm. Or how you make something can trickle out and something you don't want. But those are just like, that's just a handful of things. There's, especially if you want to hear about like the way stuff was made leading mm-hmm. to problems, man, you can spend years reading about that. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so with that, I guess all that's left is to have one final break and we'll meet you with all our housekeeping business. Okay. So uh, now it's time to decide, or have fate decide, 
uh, which of us is going to take the teaching role in do, our next episode. Do you have a coin this time? Right there Whoa, in my hand. That's came first. Prepared. It's also the first time it's a quarter, if anyone's taking notes. Oh. Yeah. Maybe it won't fall on the floor. <laughs> I think every time it's fallen on the floor. Uh, I haven't flipped it yet. Okay. Can I Would flip you like it? To fl- sure. Yeah. Do you, you still want to be heads? You, you can call it. I'm your heads still. I don't want to change everything. Okay. I'm heads, your tails? Yes. Okay. Whoop. Heads. The- <laughs> <laughs> All right. So some things never change. It's always heads. And I, this is not a two-sided quarter. So heads, I guess okay. that's that. Uh, <laughs> Fate hates me. I uh, must have really disliked the Comics Code episode. I'm sorry, guys. I don't. I don't have an uplifting one for next time. It's still going to be a downer. I haven't thought of any uplifting history yet. I was hoping. I was hoping for a little more time to come up with one, but I think we're just going to have to go with uh, my list of downers. And uh, so, with that, here <laughs> comes this week's listener mail. Okay, so we got an email from Zoe. Zoe, thanks for all the enthusiasm for our so- podcast. Zoe's highly enthusiastic. We. We love the enthusiasm. It makes us feel really good. Zoe's favorite fashion trend uh, was the overalls mm-hmm. that were very popular in the 90s. Only time they were cute and didn't immediately bring to mind Italian plumbers or straw hanging out of your mouth. SGDQ going on right now. Uh- <laughs> I I had overalls. Yeah. I, I had overalls in the 90s. Overalls are back, Zoe. Open up the window, they look are. outside. I think all of my... Rompers came in and they brought every sort of coverall garment along for the ride. All of my fellow employees like own overalls. I think I'm the only <laughs> one that hasn't jumped back in that bandwagon. But really, it's because it's like I gave up the best overalls ever as a kid. Yeah? Yeah. Tell me about your overalls, dear. They were crushed purple velvet. And that's all we need to know about your overalls. I miss them daily. But thank you, Zoe. Uh, we got one from Alex, whose favorite fashion trend is Japanese kawaii fashion, and wrote us a nice little bit about how it relates to teenage rebellion and, and sort of a, a play for what femininity means in Japan and how it can be expressed. It's very interesting topic. So thank you, Alex. Uh, so now you see the descendants of this struggle in, uh, Lolita fashion, Harajuku styles, all sorts of stuff that, uh, got ported to the U.S., I think, starting around 10, 12 years ago-ish. Yeah. I didn't mark the calendar when I started seeing people wearing this sort of thing. Uh. It's probably when it got, like, mainstream over here. Yeah, yeah. In a PPS, Alex also points out that a uh, picture going around the internet of suffragettes getting together wearing swimming suits and eating pizza in large groups. And I'd like to tell you, Alex, that's not true. That photograph is of ladies, you know, on a beach, which is why they're dressed like that, in the middle of a pie eating contest. Just regular pie, not pizza pie. Uh, it was taken after the 19th Amendment passed, so it really had nothing to do with the suffragette movement. Uh, the internet's lying to us. <laughs> it keeps doing that, but uh, we will never knowingly lie to you, folks. We might make mistakes, but uh, we're only human. But anyway, thanks for writing, Alex. Taylor sent us an email. Taylor's favorite fashion trend of the 80s and 90s is wearing oversized, brightly colored windbreakers, <laughs> which I also owned as a child. I had several sets with the matching pants. Uh-huh. Um... They were really good for ice skating when I ice skated. Were you a football coach at any period in your childhood? No, but I did do like the, well, I didn't have turtlenecks, but I had like mock turtlenecks I wore with them. I could never wear actual turtleneck because like I can't stand stuff about my neck like that, but mock turtlenecks <laughs> totally paired those yeah. with the windbreaker sets. With extra mockery, I'm sure. Big hair bow. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I took all the trends in the 90s. So thanks, Taylor. Thank I, I you. you guys all seem like we got things in common about what Thank we appreciate. <laughs> Purin's back. Hey, hey there. Thanks yeah. for coming back. Purin is our most active letter writer. <laughs> Every week. Mm-hmm. And brings up something that we covered in this very episode. Lead, yeah. Lead uh, face powder. Yep. So yeah, thanks for uh, predicting the future a little bit. We are on a wavelength, Purin. That's why you love our inbox, I suppose. Good job knowing what I was going to talk about. So thanks for writing again. Mm-hmm. Claritic sent us uh, an email bringing up 
the 60s trend of uh, paper dresses, which uh-huh. I did know about this one, but I know it's like one that kind of, it was such a short fad that it kind of goes overlooked. Paper dresses were sold like really cheaply, as they point out, and it was supposed to be like fun and disposable and who cares if it gets dirty it's really cheap and mm-hmm. you can follow all the latest trends and styles because it's just made out of paper you can go cheap. out in a new dress every night every night doesn't matter just throw it away i new love outfit. how like space age futurist this is like it's very jetsons if they yeah. weren't so flammable and ill-fitting and crumply yeah <laughs> you, you cross those hurdles and you're straight in jetsons territory i mean the 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 fashion trend of that time yeah. is totally the Jetsons, so mm-hmm. yes. So yes, thank you for sending that one in. That is an interesting point in time. Thank you, Claritic. I would love to know who thought that paper dress was a good idea. A genius. Uh, we've also got a letter from William who wants to talk about the poof, a historical fad in hairdressing uh, among the upper class French where people would weave ridiculous things into their ridiculous updos. So you just weave your real hair into a wig that also has all sorts of feathers and jewelry, and there are cases of people putting bird cages in there. So you've got a bird on your head. That's a conversation piece for your party. Put a bird on it! Yes, dear. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was the bumpet of its time. It <laughs> oh, the bumpet ain't got nothing on the poof. Do you remember, like, the bumpet just kept getting larger and larger and larger and then suddenly they just weren't a thing anymore and you were weird if you still did that you were weird if you started i I think we just all came to our senses (laughs) so thank you for writing in william and uh it's always great to hear we're being listened to on the opposite side of the world in australia james sent us an email pointing out that favorite fashion trend that Clark Gable single-handedly uh, destroyed the men's undershirt business since they didn't wear one and it happened one night and everyone followed suit with that. It's <laughs> like, hey, he did it. I'm going to do that. Um, Clark Gable's chest can uh, uh, crash an entire industry. It's fantastic. So thanks for sending in an email. Yeah, yeah. And thanks for getting me to think about Clark Gable's chest. All right, James. One note a lot of these emails touched on is something we brought up last episode, what we should call the collective of you, our fine listeners, a a growing band of of wonderful people. Uh, So there is currently a post on the Facebook page. So go like us on Facebook to to have your place, have your voice heard. Uh, That's just History Honeys. Can't miss it. Can't miss it. Uh, some of the leaders include Honey Bunches, which we came up in the moment. and Honey Bunches. It's kind of popular. Uh, honey Bees and other bee-related things, which are very sweet, although we might have to compete with Beyonce for that. And just y'all being the honeys. And some other ideas uh, in the comments, leave your own. Leave your own. Tell which one you like the best. Vote. Should we yeah. create a poll for this eventually, maybe? And if you want to vote in a poll, the morning this comes out, so people who listen to it in the middle of the night won't find it yet, but most of you will be able to go to our Twitter account, that's just History Honeys, and see a Twitter poll. Come and interact with us on social media. It'll be fun, I promise. Cool. cool but cool. you thought this through. I sure did. Love it. Uh, you can also get in touch with us by sending one of these emails. That's historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Yes. So be like and- Purin and William and Taylor and Claritic. Something else you can do instead of just talking to us is talking to people like yourselves. Feel free to send a link to your friend and tell them what you like about the show. I've seen a lot of people doing that, uh, and it just warms my heart. Yeah. The best way you can help a podcast succeed, especially among strangers, is giving us ratings and reviews on the iTunes store, mm-hmm. on Stitcher, uh, on however this is delivered to you. Those really yeah. help far more than you would think. Yeah. <laughs> Algorithms. What I, are you going to do? We, we've had so many people listen, but we have very few uh, ratings so far. Mm-hmm. So it would definitely help us out if you guys take a second to do that. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much to those of you who have. And those of you who haven't, uh, it's just a minute out of your day, and it helps so much. I'm sending you the stink eye right now. I'm the microphone. not. It's, it's good host, bad host. It's <laughs> usually how it goes in our household. But it's a stink eye with love. Okay? Sure, sure. Stink eye with love. 
Uh, there's our first T-shirt. Once we get a lot more listeners Ooh. from uh, ratings and reviews, I Thank love you. that. I would love that as a T-shirt. Stick guy of love, make a heart with your eyeballs. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> You'd have to be severely cross-eyed. Ooh, I'm trying. I'm trying right now. I think my eyebrows are doing it. I always wonder how much of this is going to make it in the episode. Well, since we've covered uh, ways to get in touch with us, did you have a prompt for next week, dear? Yes, I do. And I'm excited about it. Okay. Okay, I want people to tell me their favorite play or musical. Or, and, like, both. You can tell me both. Yeah. And if you've got a, uh interesting historical fact about that show, that'd be nifty, too, for my sake. You can do that. Or you can, we'll t- just, we can just talk theater. It's just, fine. Just talk favorites. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, you could tell me, like, the story of the first time you experienced that play. That's historical. That's personal historical fact. That's true. And, again, you can get in touch with us by sending these stories to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Yes. So I guess all that's left to say is... I'm Elena. And I'm Grant. And history's better with with your honey.